Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode 329, Thursday, January the 11th, 2024, Mark, or 2024. I presume most people will be saying 2024. Would that be correct, Mark? I imagine 20. Look, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm saying. 2022, I still haven't caught up to 2023. Yes, I'm still recovering from the year 2000 bug, Mark. <laughs> my, my computer will not boot up. The green screen will not boot up, Mark. Um, <laughs> maybe one of these days it will. How are you, Mark? Now you've made, the, as we mentioned last week, you made the big trip up north again and you're settling in. And um, from the sound of it, you're um, struggling a little bit with the with the humidity and the heat that you became accustomed to previously, I was, I was telling you off air that I thought it would be a breeze. I'd just, I'd just, and you know, get over the anxiety of the multi, multi air trip journey up here. Um, but I got out of the plane and and yeah, the the weight of ninety five percent humidity and uh, <laughs> and thirty seven degrees, um, uh, just as um made me have a little uh, rest each day in the middle of the day. I'm, I'm still acclimatising, even though I thought I had it all under control. Now, Mark, you must tell our listeners, I know you like to sort of be a bit casual about your approach to catching flights. Um, <laughs> you, you must tell the story about as, um, one of your <laughs> connections. As you well know, because we've, we've travelled. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, am, I do tend to be maybe a little bit casual, but we were in cans so we'd we'd had some trouble on the way down just squeezing everything into one day um, because there's three flights you have to catch from Newcastle to Bamaga um, and we catch a flight from Newcastle to Brisbane then Brisbane to Cairns and then Cairns to Bamaga so what we did was split the uh, the, the trip up into two days we did the uh, Newcastle Brisbane Cairns leg then stopped at Cairns overnight and then our flight to Bamaga was booked the next day at midday. Yes. But at 7 o'clock in the morning, we got a message that that flight had been cancelled and we would either have to wait four days in Cairns or um, uh, catch the 8 o'clock flight. So this was uh, at 6 minutes past 7 we got this message. <laughs> so... We were on the Esplanade at Cairns. We raced back to our hotel room, packed in record time, record time. Five, yes. Unbelievable. We were back on the road catching a taxi at 12 minutes past. And, of course, we caught the one taxi in Cairns that, uh, was, that was driven by the most kind gentleman, lovely person, but fastidious about speed limits. Of course... I completely respect that. I don't want anyone to break the law, but this one time I probably would have accepted a 10 or 15% over the speed limit uh, push. And, um, yeah, we got to the airport at 7.30. The, we raced into the Skytrans desk and they were just packing up the manifest and they did. We were literally the last people to register to get on the plane and we did get on with our anxiety at maximal level. <sighs> 
or didn't make it. But that's a, you know what I'm like when traveling to get everything together in 25 minutes and be ready to go on the plane at eight. It's a blur, Brendan. It's just a blur. Oh, you did it though, gee. That's that's certainly cutting it fine, isn't it? That, <laughs> that's interesting that they yeah, send you a text at, yeah. uh, just after seven a.m. saying you can catch the eight a.m. flight, and and presumably you're out just about to have your breakfast or have a lazy morning or something. But yeah. I, I just ordered a magic, and I had oh. to <laughs> I had to say no thanks. I can't have it. No magic today. No magic today. Well, I'm glad you're up there and um, the heat's off in one respect, but it's on in another way by the sound of it. But I'm sure you'll climatise again fairly Just a few days and I'll be good. Well, just briefly, Mark, I did something I haven't done in 22 years, Mark. What's that, Brendan? (laughs) I went out and played nine holes of golf. Oh, my goodness. I actually, um, and my, my, um, I was very surprised. My, um, I literally hadn't picked up a golf stick or a putter for 22, 23 years. And I dusted off the golf bags in the shed. Um, they were looking a bit rusty like me, Mark, but I, and my brother in law invited me out to play a nine holes of golf and, um, I actually did all right. I hit the ball down most of the fairways. I only hit it in. I don't know why, but you know what? I don't know whether you played much golf, Mark, but um, I used to play what? sort of once a week um, at one stage. But <laughs> the the water and golf balls tend to attract each other, don't they? Yeah, there is a magnetism. It doesn't matter where the, the little water has it is. Um, so I only lost one ball in the water. But apart from that, I, I was very happy with them. Um, wow. You know, I, was, I was only about three or four shots behind my brother-in-law and his son. The three of us played. So um, that was that was actually quite exciting. I was initially thinking really nervous and thinking, look, I've got to go down to a golf driving range and at <laughs> least try and hit a couple of balls first and go to a putting green or, or even mini golf before it. But um, I didn't get a chance because he just rang up and said, okay, we're playing golf tomorrow. And we rolled up at the golf course. Um, we went on the putting green for five minutes. Um, they had a little driving range and I hit like four or five shots and then we were off on to the first hole. So, yeah. I've got was... a bit of a theory about this, Brendan. You know how I often have a theory. I've got the theory of a return to physical activity. So if you if you play a sport or, or uh, some sort of physical activity that requires a technical skill, if you have a long break, that first go back always seems to just be great. And then the next yeah. few, and I think it has to do with, um, you know, muscle memory and, uh, and anxiety and, and low expectations. You're not expecting to play well, so yep, you yep, just yep. smack it off the tee and everything goes great. Yeah. Um, but the next time you start to have expectations and your shoulders tighten up a little bit and um, yeah, yeah. you address the ball slightly, you shuffle around a little bit more yes. and all of a sudden you're, 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 you're back where you belong. Yes, that's right, in the water. <laughs> Funnily enough, my brother-in-law said, oh, yeah, you know, it's amazing. Often when you haven't played for a while, the first time you play, you play well, and then the second time you play like <laughs> crap. So I think... 
that theory is is, is well, um, well supported. Yes, keep pretending that's your first time back. That's my yeah, motto. Well the, well, the way I approached it was exactly that. I thought, you know, it's a, who cares? It's a game of golf. I don't care if it goes wherever. And I just said, yeah, let's just relax. And you know, I'm not very good at this, so you know. And the more relaxed you are, the better you play it. Because it's a really mind. It's it's certainly a mind game, golf, isn't it? It's it's. Um, I reckon it drives you bananas, um, or it drives a lot of people bananas um, who play, play it regularly because it's just so much in your head. So, no, so it there definitely you go, is. Mate. Definitely is. So I'll let you know next time I play how badly I play. Uh, so. <laughs> well, I think with Look, that, we'll jump. The only thing yep. I was going to add to that is that I have played golf before and I've never had a good round. Like I played that. What I do with golf clubs can only just barely be described as playing golf. Um, I so, think so. I, th- I think you um, you do well on the on the nineteenth hole, Mark. Is, is that's where what you're working towards. Where you excel. I'll meet you there. With that, we'll jump into our news, Mark. And we don't have any news articles because I thought we'd just go over a little email from one of our regular listeners and. Uh, um, regular pest we call him um, in a kind way, Nick. And Nick just had some comments about our episode on that guinea pig urolithiasis, Mark. Do you want to? Um... Hey, hey, I do, I, there's two things I want to say about this. The first one is that I wanted to just say what a quality piece of uh, writing this is. And I've noticed that um, Nick's emails have sort of shifted from ones that end in a bit of a question mark to ones that i don't know are a bit more authoritative and asserting i'm very, this is a a quality bit of um uh uh, uh clinical information from the coalface and and there are a couple of things in it that i thought well certainly they're outside my experience and um and i'm very interested in uh in nick's perspective um, so the first point was that that he felt the whole culture and sensitivity thing um, and the likelihood of UTIs being causative was low, which sort of, you know, I think we were hinting at when we talked about that uh, at, at that uh, uh, podcast when we were talking about urolithiasis in guinea pigs. And uh, and I want the point that he makes that that free catch samples or catheterized samples uh, tend to be even less reliable and he would only depend on a uh, cystocentesis. So I, t- I tend to agree with him. What's your thoughts, Brendan? They're excellent points as usual, and I think your, your opening comments there about Nick were, were quite incisive and you know my summary of that would be you know, Nick's emails to us used to be hey Brendan and Mark what, how should I do this what do you think of this um, whereas emails these days are hey Brendan and Mark why are you doing that you should be doing it this way um, so it's great to see that he's he's caught up with us and surpassed us and he's, he's gone past uh, yes the other thing yeah, go ahead I was just going to say that in in exactly that spirit the his last paragraph uh, he talks about something that I that I can't say that I have seen a lot of cases of, and that's um, the circumstances where the uh, the stone um, is lodged, uh, you know, is uh, stuck to the mucosa by dried mucus, 
in the pelvic urethra, so it's in a position where you can't... Those little buggers, yeah. aren't they? They're shocking when they're in that spot. It's the worst of the worst, isn't I've it? I've never yeah. seen one, and I was able to... It was a bit fiddly, but I was able to manipulate it out of that location. But his comment that they've recently acquired a flexible endoscope of a sufficiently small diameter that, uh, that they can perform a urethroscopy and attempt to collect the stone in a stone basket. That's exciting stuff, Brendan. And I'm really, I have no experience of doing it, uh, of uh, collecting a stone, removing yeah. a stone that way. And I'd be really keen to, I have read that it's a fairly successful technique, uh, but I'll be desperately keen to hear how uh, Nick goes when he does uh, the urethroscopy and uh, use the, the wire cage to remove the stone. Yes, I think I've had one guinea pig in similar circumstances where I've pushed that stone back into the bladder as one, um, and another one where I did, I do have a 1.4 mil flexible scope um but once you try and put on the it, it, it yeah it has a it has a rigid you know little outer sheath um which yep. obviously you can't then thread up to where you need to so that was a difficult um i couldn't use that i could certainly see it and try and you know prod it with the end of the end of the scope um the flexible scope which didn't do that much because i do have a little one yeah very tiny two two different types of little graspers, a little claw type one that comes out like a hand, you know, those ones. And and the little basket type one as well. But I couldn't work out how to, you know, physically um put that up up the urethral region um with the scope mark um to grab it. So yeah, I'd be interested, Nick, if you want to send us a even if you send us a pic of it too, it'd be great. Um just for our own interest, have a look at it and if you've managed to have any success with it. Um but it's certainly something that's been reported. I mean the other one that that um there's a couple of papers out there, Mark, is that um, you know, using that sort of shock therapy, the ultrasound sort of therapy to break them yeah, up and then, yeah. then suck them out. And I think that I think that's the that's that would be great fun, I think, to do that. And I think that would be um high chance of success. But it's pretty damn expensive equipment, I think. Um it's what they certainly use in humans, isn't it? Um and the, the gear's pretty pricey. But it'd be nice to have that. Um but yeah, thanks for the email, Nick, and keep them coming. Yeah. Serial pest, I call you, but that's in, we a, learn, in a we nice learn. way. We we love getting your emails, Nick. So thank you very much. And we learn something every time he sends us something. And so um, uh, thanks to Nick for I really genuinely appreciate the time he takes to send us stuff. Yep, absolutely. Vetgurus at gmail.com if you want to send us an email about anything at all, even just to say hello. Um, and vetgurus.com is the website. Mark, you've suggested the topic this week, um, and I'm very much looking forward to this one, chatting to you about this and quizzing you about this one, and that is hypothyroidism in our feathered friends, so hypothyroidism in birds, Mark. And what made you think of this? Well, it's been it's interesting to me because, well, so many of the diseases we deal with in birds are reproductive if they're uh, hormonal 
or they're viral and bacterial, the typical array of pathogens, um, we haven't characterized a great deal of, of uh, uh, endocrine disease in birds. It, it's not an area that is easy to research, and so there's not a lot of, of good data. But we have over the, you know, the last couple of decades, particularly with uh, the association of of uh, avian veterinarians, the Australian yes. chapter. Uh, there's been a number of papers published at at those conferences, which uh, which looked at hypothyroidism in a number of species, but particularly galahs. And then this month in the Association of Avian Veterinarians, the a main body have a journal, JAMS, the Journal of Avian Medicine and Surgery. And there's an article in this month's, this uh, quarter, I think they're published quarterly. This quarter's journal, which talks about uh, hypothyroidism in a pigeon, congenital hypothyroidism in a pigeon. And that triggered me to think about those Galar cases. And I thought I'd talk to you about them. Well, let's do that, Mark. So where do we want to start with it? What species, Mark, what species are reported as far as, um, in, well, both in the literature and anecdotally or in, in clinics, Mark, has, has, has um, been confirmed or suspect hypothyroid? Well, you've alluded to one of the real problems with um, this disease, that, uh, that there are no um, uh, validated uh, clinical pathology tests, which would um, uh, which would guarantee you a diagnosis, the uh, the thyroid stimulating hormone test uh, that that uh, picks the difference between birds that can produce thyroid hormone or patients that can produce thyroid hormone and those that can't. That test depends on um, human recombinant TSH um, and so uh, so there, there are probably um, being a non-species specific uh, um, hormone there probably are cases where it might not actually be the one that works so the test is a little bit difficult there have been a number the interesting thing is the clinical signs um, that maybe alert us it could be a little bit of a self, you know, proving a self uh, evidentiary thing that we start looking for hypothyroidism in those animals that that are well putting on weight that might have a lower rate of metabolism and so store body tissue away as fat, and so the species of birds that uh, that have been uh, likely diagnosed with some. Um, with hypothyroidism uh, are those that that generally tend to um, put that fat on relatively easily. The Amazons, the the Galahs, as we mentioned, those birds that that have a tendency to uh, um, put weight on. And it does beg the question: Is that something that's happening because we have, you know, is the hypothyroidism the result? of uh, fat metabolism and uh, endocrine changes or is it uh, is, is it um, causing a lot of those um, fatty changes um, you know uh, the chicken and egg story brendan so what then are 
let's just sort of go back one step. <laughs> step, what are the classic signs? What would make you think this bird is a potential hypothyroid bird? Do we have the similar sort of signs we're seeing mammals with hypothyroidism? What, what, what triggers you as far as maybe this is a hypothyroid case? Well, I suppose broadly speaking, they are the sorts of things that we'd see with a um, with a mammal. It's just you know the cutaneous and and uh, uh, body weight issues, and the problem. The good thing, I suppose, for for us with birds is that is that most of the clinical signs that trigger us to go, oh, have we got a hypothyroidism case here? Are feather dystrophies. The Birds will have um, cutaneous manifestations, but they're um, long-standing and and uh, and they have problems with their feathers. So those galahs, and we've had a couple diagnosed. Those galahs look greasy. They don't produce excellent feather down. They produce aberrant uh, preen gland oil. Um, and the feathers, as a consequence, are dishevelled. And a bird that looks like that, but maybe is carrying a little bit of extra weight, um, they do um, set off the alarm. The bells start ringing, and we start to think about um, what diagnostic steps we could take to uh, evaluate their yes. thyroid status. So, what do we do, Mark? What are these? What's the workup for them? Well, there's the. the on top of the our general, you know, the our usual physical exam, uh, particularly paying attention to things like auscultation, uh, so that we hear the heart rate. These birds will often have a slower heart rate than usual, and the altered patterns of sound through the respiratory tract as a result of body fat deposition. Those things can be identified on physical exam. Um, it's well worth taking radiographs. Um, there have been a number of cases where the body fat deposition has gotten to the stage where it has caused uh, problems internally with enlarged livers or even uh, adhesions between um, uh, fat bodies internally and internal organs. So radiographs to assess those internal structures. Well, diagnostic imaging probably is a better description because radiographs and all ultrasound. Uh, blood tests, uh, general blood tests, um, particularly paying attention to the enzymes that will give us clues about liver function in birds. And then using the blood to um, assess thyroid hormone. Now, as I said before, these tests are not uh, validated, but Certainly in uh, some cases, the results will be equivocal that you'll get um, results that are not clearly outside the normal range for other species. But then you'll get these results that are that in my mind are, uh, are highly, highly suggestive of, uh, of um, hypothyroidism. And yes. then uh, more recently, these uh, publications like the ones associated with this uh, pigeon um, suggest that you can use uh, TSH to um, to assess whether the, the thyroid gland has the capacity to respond or not and more so, specifically characterise the hypothyroidism. So, Mike, a couple of questions, Mark. So the difficulty of diagnosing is sort of hinted at there. Are there any specific 
do's or don'ts you recommend for both, I suppose, collection of the the bloods that and and what's been written in these papers, not just your personal experience, but and you know what labs may or may may not may or may not be able to help you. Do you need to send it to specific labs, Mark, to try and get this diagnosis or not? No, you you definitely it's definitely a good thing to use your um your, you know the whichever uh, pathology service that does your avian work, and there's no doubt they're going to uh, caution you that their comments are based on. Um, unvalidated interpretation of the results, um, but but yeah, the 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 analyses are done with those uh, uh, um, the same. They're not bird specific. There are yep. no bird specific uh, yep. tests, so they're just using the same tests that we would use on uh, other small animals. Um, and so any pathology service familiar with birds can run the blood. The other thing that's prob that's been a problem uh, in a couple of the publications and for me is that um, is that you do need uh, because you're using a test that is you know for small uh, for small animals for dogs and cats predominantly you need a greater volume of blood than you would um, than you would normally uh, require for most avian uh, blood analysis um, so. Uh, there have been a number of times where we've had suspicion that we've had a budgerigar or a um, a cockatiel that could have hypothyroidism, and we have not been able to run the tests because we haven't been able to collect a sample of sufficient volume. Um, galahs and Amazons, uh, pigeons, those birds that are that are approaching half a kilo in body weight. Um, those birds will give you, uh, with the pathology services that we've used, um, uh, sample sizes that are useful and interpretable. Yep, yep. So next question. I've got a couple here, Mark. They keep yeah, coming. I love your questions. So treatment regime, um, what has been tried and what seems to help or not help? Um, and the follow-up question to that is, um, <laughs> I presume some people are treating some of these that are suspected um, as being hypothyroidism. What is the risk of treating them if they may not be confirmed? Bloody good questions. The, the, the treatment is um, exactly as you would expect, that um, that uh, you can provide them with um, supplemental thyroid hormone. Um, it is a little bit of mucking around in the clinic. You do have to get uh, the tablets and grind them up and create uh, uh, suspensions that have to be shaken before the aliquots are drawn off and given to the bird. But, and there are published dose rates for using those, uh, those um, particularly the... the uh, the uh, levothyroxin supplements that are often given to um, other small animals, and um, and in my experience, they they work, particularly where the, those cases where we've had highly highly suggestive blood results, they work really well, and the literature suggests that uh, over a period of a couple of molts, you if you, the diagnosis is uh, is accurate, you'll get significant improvement in the plumage. Now, recent 
uh, case reviews, uh, uh, case, you know, where they've looked at large numbers of cases, case yes. studies, they suggest that not very many of them return perfectly to normal plumage, that they might improve 70, 80, 90%, but they still have some degree of, of feather dystrophy. Um, and that probably, in my mind, represents the inability to be as precise as we'd like with the uh, with the thyroid supplementation and ongoing monitoring. Um, but but yeah, the response is really good. What are the risks of uh, supplementing a uh, a bird that um, is is uh, not hypothyroid? Well, it's the danger of having a hyperthyroid bird. It's, uh, it, you know, the, the, there are potentially cardiac problems. And so if the, and, and I put my hand up as being guilty here, there have been a number of times where I have gotten equivocal clinical pathology results and I've started a bird on treatment. I think those birds, you know, need to be very, very closely monitored. And, uh, and once they're safe to draw blood from again, I think repeated testing um, is appropriate, and uh, if there's any indication that um, they might be um, uh, not hypothyroid and have other reasons for um, their feather dystrophy, then withdrawing the thyroid supplement is probably appropriate. In the short term, yes. I think they probably feel a little bit better anytime thyroid, thyroid supplementation occurs, but once it becomes chronic, those uh, cardiac problems in particular can be uh, life-threatening. Ah, I have more questions, Mark. More questions coming your way. So you mentioned about the malt. Uh, do they then go through several malts fairly rapidly? Um, and, and what sort of time frame do you see them commencing that, that um, initial malt after commencing um, therapy? Great question. It's, it's fascinating to me that um, the initial malt will happen surprisingly quickly within um, uh, within weeks within a couple of weeks of starting the medication they will have a significant feather turnover um, and it's often you know the normal thing with birds would be that there's a wave-like occurrence of the molt most birds uh, will not shed all their feathers in one go. Uh, most of the birds we see in captivity, there are some species that will, you know, lose all their flight feathers or like penguins have a, a, um, a very short molt and lose all their feathers and refresh them. But most birds do it in like a, a systematized wave-like fashion so that they can maintain flight and uh, thermoregulation. Um, but the molt that occurs on the initiation of thyroid hormone therapy is often disorganized and can make the birds, um, well, initially look even a bit more uh, disheveled because they've got um, feathers growing, feathers falling yeah. out. And it's often that second or third molt, maybe as many as uh, four or six months down the track where they start to, you know, approach that 70 or 80% on the way back to looking normal. Mm. Very interesting, Mark. Uh, <laughs> considering it's an avian topic, very interesting. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I've got one further question, Mark, if you don't mind me asking one further question. I love questions. questions. I love Com- the way that we start with an agenda <laughs> and I've got a vague idea what I'm going to say. And then we come up with a whole lot of questions and, and yeah, all of a sudden I learn how little I actually know. So compliance, how... What are you doing to get this medication into the birds, Mark? Are we compounding it? What's the pros and cons of that? Um, are there any tips or tricks for that? Another insightful question. For someone that doesn't see too many birds, you have all the right questions, Brendan. It is the the usual way um, that I have done this is that um, it is compounded up in, you know, it's ground up, made into a suspension in water, and maybe that water is flavoured with something that the the uh, galah might like. So um, maybe something like a, a little bit of um, pineapple juice or orange juice or something that makes it less stressful for the bird to have it administered. Generally speaking, the in my experience, I've been fortunate that the birds that have this problem are often very tractable birds. And so the owners have been able to be compliant and deliver, you know, the small volume. Um, often uh, we compound it up so that it is just, you know, a couple of tenths of a mil, something like that. So it's not yeah. a, a horrible volume that uh, the bird's going to aspirate and be in trouble. And as I said, most of these birds, for reasons that I suspect are associated with the hypothyroidism, are very compliant. Um, so that hasn't been uh, a huge problem. The, the, of all the diseases where we've had to have birds on chronic medication, this has not been one where I've thought, uh, crikeys, I wish there was another way to do this. Um, it does seem to work out okay. Excellent. And I think, I think the other thing I'd say about that is, I have not had the privilege of using, you know, we just generally, um, uh, well, it's a big do-it-yourself project, DIY, in the clinic. Um, Whereas I think these days with those compounding pharmacies, um, it might well be uh, something that we'd we'd write a script for and and, uh, and get uh, even more flavoursome preparation uh, uh, made by one of the compounding pharmacists. Yes. Well, that was a very extensive answer, Mark. <laughs> um, without notice, that question, so well done. Uh, I think well, I think we covered most of that. Um, it's a very interesting topic, Mark, and obviously I was going to say an emerging disease, but emerging diagnosis yes. um, is and probably a better think, way of putting it. Yeah. And I think that's the, the take-home message is that if you have a – um, particularly one of those species, uh, an Amazon or a Goar, maybe a Budgerigar that's um, demonstrating feather dystrophy that's consistent with um, uh, uh, hypothyroidism, then at least have that on your list of differentials. And when you get to the point of drawing blood, make sure that you uh, uh, keep in mind that it might be worth drawing a little bit more to get a thyroid hormone assay performed. Excellent insightful <laughs> full of full of chock full of information mark as always i thought um, you were going to say something else then <laughs> no. 
Thank you very much. I think we better get out of here, Mark, and uh, we'll let you try and cool down and acclimatise and we'll talk to all our listeners next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.